And good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, sorry, broadcast delayed a little more than usual today. I was having some technical difficulties, but I think I got everything sorted out. I had to reboot my system, so uh, apologize for the delays there. Good to be back. It is session number 171 of Exploring the Lord of the Rings, and we are beginning to narrow in on it on session 50 on the Council of Elrond, and we're getting to the very end of Gandalf's narrative today. We're going to look at uh, the uh, uh, modest amount of stress that Gandalf causes to Barlaman Butterbur, uh, and we are also uh, going to look at the moderate amount of stress that Gandalf uh, causes to the Witch King um, and the way in which uh, Gandalf's movements uh, contribute uh, to some of the difficulties that we were discussing before um, uh, for um, uh, uh, to, for what the Witch King was facing uh, in, uh, in the wilds uh, to the east of Bree. So... That's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, two things I wanted to announce before we get going, though. One, briefly, just as I mentioned last week, TextMoot registration is open. Our second online moot of the year is happening. Um, online regional moot, not exactly a regional moot, but it is an online moot, and you are invited. Um, uh, so TextMoot, they're still taking uh, uh, proposals, actually, for... Um, I think through this week, they'll still take uh, proposals for contributions. So if you've got something you've been working on, you know, from some of our Exploring the Lord of the Rings discussions, this is a great opportunity for you to, uh, you know, present some stuff, have some discussion. Uh, so I definitely uh, recommend that. Go to textmoot.org or to signumuniversity.org. Uh, and there it is. There's our uh, uh, there's our thing there. Um, so that's one announcement. Just a reminder uh, of that. Um, and uh, yeah, and yeah, Bjarne Sauna, That's that's exactly right. Yeah, I am uh, trying not to think too much about the barbecue I'm going to be missing. My tradition when I go to Texas is I generally drive straight from the airport to a barbecue place. Like that's kind of, that's what I've done pretty much every time I've been to Texas. Uh, so, uh, anyway, um, but not this year, alas. However, the day is coming soon, uh, when, uh, we'll be able to, uh, do our regional moots again. Um, I am, uh, I am hopeful. I am hopeful. <laughs> JJ, if you really want to give your presentation on how Bob is not a hobbit, Okay, you know, I, I'm not saying we wouldn't accept it. I'm just saying it's an uphill, it's an uphill battle as far as I'm concerned. There we go. Um, but um, anyway, okay, so so that's one thing. Text mood. Here's the other thing. Uh, there's a, a fun announcement. It's a little bit like specific, but it's but it's a really fun announcement nevertheless. That I wanted to share with you guys. You will remember that I have been telling you guys about the new program that Signum has been that has been in the process of of launching and preparing, our Signum Academy Clubs program. These extracurricular clubs programs uh, for uh, school age kids for uh, grade three through grade twelve, or for non-Americans, age 8 to 18, basically. And um, the, um, so the, the, the clubs, of course, feature book club, which is, you know, fun book discussions, uh, writing club, which is a creative writing workshop for kids. Um, the, um, 
uh, and two different language clubs. One which is an immersive conversation club and the other which is a translation club. Basically it's like for living languages and for dead languages. Uh, and uh, of course, I, I'm sure many people here will uh, agree with my general feelings that dead languages are even more fun than living languages. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, that's going to be... Um, uh, we're, we're, we're doing both. We're providing, uh, kids the opportunity, uh, to, to do both now. So I've announced that before, but here's the announcement. Here's the new thing that just happened at the end of last week. At the end of last week, the, uh, the board of New Hampshire, uh, the board of New Hampshire, the board of education in the state of New Hampshire, uh, approved, uh, Signum, uh, our, our clubs program uh, for participation in a new and innovative program that the state of New Hampshire has just launched just a couple months ago. Uh, we're in fact the first ever language arts program to participate, uh, to be approved for this program. Uh, the program is called the Learn Everywhere Initiative. And the concept of it is essentially that it enables students, uh, you know, high school age, specifically for high school age students. It enables high school students in the state of New Hampshire who are participating in other extracurricular activities to be able to essentially transfer uh, certificates from those program from those programs from those extracurriculars into their schools and receive school credit towards graduation for them. Um, and so Signum has been was unanimously approved by the Board of Education. We went through a careful vetting process where they very carefully scrutinized our program uh, and decided that uh, we could award equivalency certificates uh, for high school uh, programs in the state of New Hampshire. So students can do English and creative writing electives with us, and they can also do language courses. So, you know, instead of taking you know, Spanish one and Spanish two at your high school, you can do conversation club with us and you can get the, the, uh, the credits transferred in to your high school so that you don't have to do the class there. And so one of the things that I'm really hoping for, um, we're going to be working on, uh, we're already working on expanding our language offerings, uh, because we're going to be able to enable students to study a lot. Like, you know, in order for a school district to be able to offer a language, they have to have a certain number of students who are going to take it, right? In order for them to be, you know, paying a teacher on staff to be teaching uh, those classes. And a lot of school districts, um, you know, have been like losing languages, like, you know, their language options are sort of narrowing and narrowing. Um, so it's one one really exciting thing that we're going to be able to do uh, is to be able uh, to supplement those kinds of offerings so that if somebody wants to take a language that they don't, that isn't offered at their school, they can come to us and be like, Hey, I want to do German. I want to learn Japanese. You know, I want to, you know, something else. And, uh, I want to learn Anglo-Saxon. You know, I want to learn Greek. I want to learn Quenya, you know, and we can be like, yeah, absolutely, man, let's do that. Um, and we can arrange a club for them and we can give them certificates that they can uh, that they can transfer in. Uh, so it's really, really cool. Now, again, the only downside is it's only unfortunately, it's only people in New Hampshire because New Hampshire, as I say, they have this new program. It is an awesome program. The Learn Everywhere program is I think it's way ahead of the curve, I think person, not to brag on my state, but I think it's way ahead of the curve. And I think it's really exciting. Um, and I hope that lots of other states get super jealous and decide that they uh, really want to copy uh, New Hampshire in this. Anyone is welcome, of course, to participate in our clubs. They are open to everybody and not just high school, but all the way down, as I say, to grade three. Um, 
it's only the high school kids in the state of New Hampshire. So it's only that subset who is able to qualify for school credits uh, in this way. Um, but um, anyway, it's um, it's pretty cool. Uh, so I'm really, really excited about this. The Board of Education was really enthusiastic about our program. As I said, they they uh, uh, they. Uh, you know, voted us in unanimously. We had a great discussion about um, our, you know, our program and our offerings. They were really excited about the language. They were immediately talking about school districts that they're connected to. They're like, well, the Manchester school district just had to cancel their German classes and, you know, and all these kinds of things. So they were really excited. They, they immediately saw the kind of opportunities, you know, the expanded opportunities that this is going to provide for folks. Um, so anyway, that's, um, that's, uh, that's, that's our big announcement. We're really excited about this. Uh, so obviously for people in the state of New Hampshire, this is especially exciting news, but of course I hope people will spread the word about this. Um, and obviously we, we are really hoping that lots of students are going to be uh, getting involved in this because I think it's a really, really fun uh, opportunity. Um, <laughs> yeah, Sharon says maybe we could get Mark Ockren to teach Klingon. Hey man, uh, come on, like you know you would be the coolest high school student in America if you could graduate with, like, on your high school... Like, imagine going to colleges with a high school transcript that listed Klingon 1 and Klingon 2 uh, as your language. I mean, for real, right? Like, that's, uh, that's, uh, that is hardcore right there uh, and could totally happen. Um, <laughs> but... Um, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Angrist, you're right. Talk about standing out from the crowd. I would sure give you a conversation piece on your uh, on your uh, <laughs> on your <laughs> at your interview. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I, I agree. GDC says if you get those credits, they give you a dagger instead of a diploma. Yeah, exactly. I, f I do feel, you know, when we, we if we provided certificates in Klingon, we would have to have some kind of ritual that included violence. Uh, but uh, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, yeah, Angrist, exactly. The final exam would be to read Hamlet in the original Klingon. I, exactly. I think that's just how it would go. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, right. So, and of course, another app would just to point out, uh, uh, you know, one thing, um, one really obvious application of this for folks outside of New Hampshire. I said for, you know, for folks in New Hampshire, all school kids are able to uh, to use these to be able to uh, to get credit from their schools. But um, even outside of New Hampshire, uh Folks who I, and anyone who is involved in homeschooling, I think this would be something that would be a really good option. Um, again, like we, you know, we don't have arrangements or anything with all of the different states, but since we've already been through the vetting process by the board, you know, we've already, you know, our program has been approved uh, as, you know, with like official equivalencies within, you know, the state standards uh, of New Hampshire, it's, it would provide a really good framework to kind of be able to go and to submit that to your, uh, you know, your school district or however it works in your home state. Uh, so I, I do think it's going to be a really good opportunity for homeschoolers as well. And I would hope that uh, that uh, that homeschoolers in many different states would be able to kind of, you know, we've 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 done all the legwork already. Right. And we can give you all the. 41 page document that we prepared for the Board of Education to show all the, you know, kind of back end 
uh, edu jargon, you know, about um, about our program. So we'd be very happy to kind, you know, to kind of help families uh, to be able to, you know, families who wanted to to use, you know, our book clubs for English, our our creative writing. Uh, workshops, our language uh, stuff, lots of opportunity uh, for the uh, for that. Um, so, um, anyway, yeah, it, no, yeah, kid, I know it's not exactly a diploma thing for high schoolers. It's it's not it's not the same. But again, but I know that you know there are you know sort of equivalencies that you have to show and like demonstrate that you know the English classes that you're doing are you know achieve, you know the students are achieving mastery and the appropriate competencies and all that kind of thing that's the kind of thing we've already done i mean in during the course of this process we've done that um so my hope is that we would be you know it's one of the things i was thinking of as we were preparing this is that it would i hope equip us to be able to equip in turn um homeschool parents who wanted to have their kids participate in clubs and were interested in you know sort of having that count uh for the state um so uh anyway that's that's definitely uh something that i think would be a really and I, of course i know there, there are more people. Certainly, this is true in New Hampshire, and I'm sure it's true in other states as well. There are more people homeschooling than ever before uh, in the context of the pandemic. So, um, and I also know that many of the people who are homeschooling now and have begun homeschooling during the pandemic um, are kind of strapped uh, for educational materials and would quite appreciate uh, some assistance in that regard. So, I just would wanted to throw that out there as certainly something to kind of help spread the word about. If you if you know folks uh, who are homeschooling, again, anywhere from upper elementary all the way through high school, um, uh, who are, um, you know, home, as I say, homeschooling kids and uh, interested in supplementing that curriculum with, you know, some really good guided discussions on quality language art stuff. Um, this would be a really, really great place for that. So um, we're, we're going to be starting up our clubs officially in February, um, you know, kind of slowly getting that, st that, uh, that started. Uh, so uh, really excited to get going on that. This is something we've, we've been working on the uh, the Learn Everywhere application. It's a, as I say, it's a it's a very rigorous process, and um, we've been working on that behind the scenes for a few months now. So really delighted to be able to give the good news about that. All right. Um, so yeah, and by the way, if you're yeah, thank you, Kit, for sharing that. I appreciate that. If you want to share that, the th the thing I'd ask you to share there's we have, there's our web page, uh, and there's also. Um, uh, there's also uh, a, an email address, a general contact email address. Direct all inquiries about the club's program to academy at signumu.org. Um, then, you know, so if you have any questions, you know, about like, hey, you know, oh, would this work for my family and this situation, whatever, that's great. Frank, yeah, that's great. Frank says, as a homeschooling parent for the last 12 years, I can say this is our hour. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I hear you on that, Frank. I definitely hear you on that. Um, yeah, Frank. Well, goodness knows, Frank. I would be honored uh, to have any of your kids in our clubs. Uh, that would be uh, that would be fantastic. Uh, having having met your kids, I am uh, I would be excited uh, to have them involved. That would be excellent. Um, all right, so. I'll move on from my announcement. Sorry, I'm all excited about this. This is one of the big things that's been happening in the Signum world over the last, you know, four or five days. So, uh, uh, so anyway, uh, thanks for, uh, uh, thanks for uh, uh, listening to me on that. And let's get back to Gandalf's journey here. Okay, so um, we were 
last time we were focusing on his approach to Bree, really we're looking at sort of Gandalf's emotional journey, right? As he was kind of, uh, you know, he only gave the events of his journey from, you know, from Rohan to Bag End, from Bag End to Buckland and from Buckland to Bree. He gave that very much in brief, right? And we were looking at the way in which he, the kinds of details that he provided, which do a wonderful job of like giving us, giving us enough detail to ourselves, imagine what he must have been thinking and feeling, but he doesn't actually tell us anything about how he's thinking and feeling, right? Um, so I, uh, or not very much anyway. Um, and in particular, we ended by looking at his road from Buckland to um, to Bree. And, you know, st- beginning with what I was, um, well, what, what I was suggesting, it's not stated explicitly in the text, but given the context of what the text does say, it's impossible for me to imagine that Gandalf was not actively shutting out, pushing away the hobbits of Buckland, right? I mean, the, Buckland is a stir like an anthill that's been kicked. He was definitely seen coming in and going out. He definitely would have been accosted, um, maybe with hostility because, you know, people were just injured by horse, by horsemen coming in very fast and leaving very fast. Um, so certainly as he would have come in and he would have come in in a hurry and being, um, you know, stopping for nobody and nothing, right, coming in to try to find whether or not Frodo made it. Um, he, um, so, you know, obviously he's going to be laser focused on trying to find that out. And then he admitted afterwards he fell into despair and didn't stop to talk to anybody or he might have been comforted. Um, and so, the, and again, leaving, he must have been accosted. Some of them might have known him. Now, I don't know how well known Gandalf is in Buckland, how much time he actually spent in Buckland. He might have done. We know his connection with the Tooks and obviously with the Bagginses of Bag End. Um, he would have been known you know, in kind of peripheral fashion. Obviously, he's known to Mary Brandybuck, but that's in large part because Mary Brandybuck is one of those, you know, uh, uh, you know, sort of nephews who hangs out with Uncle Bilbo, right? It's 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 through his being friends with Bilbo and with and primarily with Frodo uh, that he uh, that that Gandalf is really known to Mary. I'm not sure if he is really known. You know, again, how much time he spent in Buckland? It's not really sure. Um. Uh, it, it, it's not really certain, but in any case, um, some of the people who were attempting to, doubtless, attempting to accost him in Buckland might have been doing so in friendly fashion. Others uh, would likely have been doing so with hostility, but he stopped and paid attention to none of them. So I'm imagining Gandalf in this very stormy state of mind, right, in despair, believing Right. Not just suspecting, not just worrying, not just imagining as he's been doing for months from the top of Orthanc, but 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 feeling that he knows at this point. Right. That ride from Buckland to Bree is one of his really low points. Like he has seen evidence, direct evidence that Frodo was taken by the Nazgul. Um, And so as far as he knows, the worst has happened. Um, so, um, 
Yeah, and Emily's wondering, has it been so long since Bilbo's party that they wouldn't recognize him by reputation, at least? You're right, Emily, that many, you know, that there would have been many folks from Buckland who were there at Bilbo's party, and it's only been 17 years, so doubtless many of them are still alive, right? Um, and probably remember, depending on how much they were drinking that night at the at Bilbo's party. Um, so yeah, no, I do imagine that he must be known to some people. I'm just kind of thinking, like, would he be recognized by folks on the street, right? I mean, remember we're told in chapter one that the Hobbit children who see Gandalf riding by with his cart of fireworks all know him by sight, right? Is that, that's true in Hobbiton. Is it true in, you know, in Buckland? I'm less confident that it is, but it, it might be. It might be. I, you know, I wouldn't rule it out, but I'm not sure. Um, that's, that's only sort of my, my, uh, my question is that, but my, 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 uh, my question there. Um, yeah, Ray, Rayburn says it's uh, probably uh, some are still trying to figure out what Bilbo meant. Yeah, they're still trying to puzzle out his comment and see if it works out to a compliment. Yeah, some of them might 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 well be. Um, yeah, indeed. Um, yeah, interesting. Green Great Dragon points out that it's ironic that Gandalf comes after the to do for once. Right, he didn't cause it. You know, it's not. Uh, chaos left in the wake of Gandalf, though he does leave chaos in his wake, but there was chaos already there, right? Yeah. Um, absolutely. Um, yep. So anyway, um, but again, my point is that ride, right? That ride from Buckland to Bree must have been horrible, and what he admits, like the 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 piece of like internal narrative that he relates to us, um, you know, that he quotes is his imagining... Uh, some retributive action against Butterbur, right? Um, that if he finds out that this delay was Butterbur's fault, um, he will roast the old fool alive, right? That he will melt all the butter out of him. Now, the pun, the butter pun, right? His, um, if he hadn't added that, if he had just said, um, uh, I will ro if I find out that all of this is his fault, I will roast the old fool alive. Um, it might have sounded a little bit more. Uh, it might have sounded a little bit more um, threatening, purely threatening, right? Like, like I could imagine maybe he was actually thinking about it. Um, uh, certainly vindictive, Emily. Definitely. Um, but the fact that he is. He's softening it, at least in retrospect, uh, by attributing to himself a joke in the middle of it, right? I will melt all the butter out of him makes it sound a little bit less scary. It does sound more like hobbitry that way, Bjarne Sonor. I agree. I agree. Um, uh, JJ says it reminds him a little of the Hobbit's Gandalf. Yeah, yeah. No, I can, I can see, I can see kind of a, a, that sort of a flavor uh, of it. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, um, um, <laughs> Matt Violinus says it may also be the entire reason Tolkien named the innkeeper Butterbur. Uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, the pun is certainly, uh, lovely in that way. Um, though, as I recall, the name is very early. I, I don't think he ever had another last name. Um, uh, his, uh, first name changed. If I'm remembering correctly, in the very first draft at Bree, his first name, the innkeeper's first name, was Barnabas. 
Um, yeah, yeah, Barnabas Butterbur uh, originally, but I'm I'm pretty sure he was always Butterbur, and uh, and that was I'm pretty sure well before the butter pun. Um, uh, Timothy Titus, yeah, they, that was played with. Timothy Titus uh, uh, did get tossed around there, but I'm trying to remember Nahor. Did that get into prose, or was that just tossed around in? You know, in uh, in you know projections and and uh, you know marginal you know like the stuff that he did when he was like thinking ahead. Um, uh, Nahor, that's that's well remembered. Timothy Titus was a, definitely an innkeeper name that he threw out there, um, but um, but I don't think I'm trying like I don't think there's like a a version of the narrative when they're like interacting with him as like Mr. Titus. Um, I'm pretty sure it was Barnabas Butterbur from the beginning. Um, uh, but yeah, I think it was just an outline version, Nahor. That's my reaction. But well remembered. I'd forgotten about Timothy Titus. That's that's really good. Um, uh, but yeah, we'll have to look. Somebody can look it up in uh, Return of the Shadow for me. Maybe it did. Maybe it did uh, uh, <laughs> creep in. Harden Crayon says, I can't believe it's not Butterbur. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, uh, uh, D. Schwab, it is really interesting to see that the one principle that remains true through all three of the innkeeper's names is alliteration, right? That was clearly like in his head, whatever it was. It was either Timothy Titus or Barnabas Butterbur or Barlaman Butterbur, but it was alliterating, right? That was that was obviously the rule um, in his in his mind there. Um, but um, anyway, okay, so. Whether or not Gandalf was joking to himself, punning on Butterbur's name, you know, during his ride, or whether he um, was um, uh, adding the joke, like, retroactively during his narration in order to uh, sort of soften the threat uh, the torturous threat against Butterbur, I'm not really sure. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. In Valoria, I agree. The alliteration does suggest uh, that Butterbur was always meant to be a comic character. Um, yes, agreed, agreed. Um, that, that was certainly going to be an element of his character from the very beginning, and I, I do agree with you that the alliteration seems to support that. Not that everyone with an alliterative name is, uh, you know, that that means you're you know, destined for comic relief and nothing else. But, um, but it does, um, uh, it does certainly, you know, go along with that. You know, it's a, it's certainly a natural and fit accompaniment, uh, for that kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> right, right. Bruinier says, Peter Parker says hi. Yeah, well, Peter Parker's pretty funny, isn't he? Um, I mean, he's a comic character uh, in more than one way, I suppose. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, right, Aragorn, son of Arathorn, is alliterative? Eh, no. I mean, yeah, technically, but like it's got with the son of in the middle of it. it it's uh, it's all about the flow, right? It's all about the flow. Um, you don't you don't you don't land on it. Um, yeah, I mean, you could do it. You could do it. Um, you could use Aragorn, son of Arathorn, in an alliterative poetic line, for instance. Like, that'd be perfectly fine. But it doesn't have the comic 
you know, turn uh, of a regular, um, um, a regular alliteration there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, right, Aragorn Arathornson. Sure, except uh, he never calls him that, right? So again, he doesn't 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 have that. Um, there we go. JJ found it. Excellent. Excellent. Um, Barnab- Barnabas Butterbur is written in ink over the original name in pencil, Timothy Titus. So Timothy Titus, very briefly, made it into the narrative, but was immediately replaced. Um, yeah, there we go. There we go. Yeah, and then Christopher gives us one of those... Uh, uh, really tantalizing notes, right? Where he says, Timothy Titus was the name of the innkeeper uh, in the underlying pencil text throughout the chapter. This was a name that survived from an old story of my father's, of which only a couple pages exist. No doubt all that was ever written down. But that Timothy Titus bore no resemblance whatsoever to Mr. Butterbur. It's like, dude, Christopher, come on, don't leave us hanging like that. Give us an appendix. Uh, give us a summary of the Timothy Titus story. Oh, man. Oh, well. Um, Yeah, but there you go. Timothy Titus. See, Sam, that's a really great point. Sam says, I can't imagine a Tolkien character named Timothy. Uh, Yeah, well, I mean, of course, he changes it. But um, but yeah, I mean, uh, it's it really helps you to see when he wrote that very original draft, the one in which Timothy Titus makes it into the pencil through and then gets quickly replaced by Barnabas Butterbur. Um, He. um, he was still think he was still in Hobbit mode. Like this was still a Hobbit sequel. He was putting uh, Frodo, well, Bingo, out on the road um, with no idea of where he was going and why he was doing that. Now he'd already, you know, he'd he'd he'd, he'd started down the road. They'd met the Black Riders, so the story had begun to take shape. But but he was still he was still in that mode. It hadn't yet changed. The tenor of the story hadn't really fully changed. Um, and uh, so that's, um, I think, really uh, part of the reason for that, you know. But anyway, um, yeah, the lack of biblical names, I think, is uh, is important because Kurtzman, he was trying to avoid anachronism, essentially. You know, the um, it's one of the reasons there are a large number of traditional, you know, like medieval English names that were not available to him. Uh, directly because he wanted to avoid the anachronism of names that were taken directly from the Bible because, you know, this is happening pre-Bible. So, um, uh, so yeah, yeah, that's, that's something that he does generally try to avoid. Um, you know, there are some times when he doesn't fully avoid it. Like you can get away with things like Sam, right? You know, Sam is, uh, but of course, Sam, you know, Samwise Gamgee is not named after Samuel uh, of the Old Testament, but you can get, you know, you can get Sam and you can get um, uh, Harry, right, and others uh, without having to, you know, other sort of traditional English names, uh, even ones which are uh, based on, um, uh, uh, based on biblical, like Tom, right? Yeah, Tom Kurtzimus was exactly, just as your comment came up, I was saying that, Tom the, the troll, uh, right, you can see, but again, it's... Um, um, and Tom Bombadil, of course. Uh, 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 but it's it's uh, um, not explicitly Thomas, right? It, just as Samwise isn't from Samuel. Um, but um, 
Yeah, exactly. The way that he uses Tom as a as a short for Tolman. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I know Bjarne Sonner. How weird does it sound, right? Uh, Thomas Bombadil, right? What a what a what a what a bizarre uh, thing. And in part, Thomas Bombadil sounds incredibly bizarre because it doesn't scan, right? I mean, Tom Bomb, the Tom Bomb part of his name is like that scans with his normal poetry, right? Tom Bombadil is a reason he starts so many of his lines with his own name, right? Uh, just add that. Have to add the one other one, right? Ho Tom Bombadil, um, uh, but the Tom Bomb at the start of his name is just like it's it's how his name sounds. It's an essential part of how his name sounds. So when you add that extra syllable, it's like ah weird. <laughs> Thomas Bombadilius, yeah, exactly. In the Latin translation of uh, <laughs> of <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, I wonder, Kurtzimus, what uh, Tom Bombadil would have to do for uh, Goldberry to call him Thomas. Uh, I mean, he would have to be in a, a great deal of trouble indeed, I would think. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, it's Fourth Dauntless. Is there a Latin translation? I know the Latin translation of the Hobbit. I have the Latin translation of the Hobbit. Um, but I don't know of a Latin translation of the Lord of the Rings. And if there isn't one, why not? Good grief. What is everybody doing with themselves? Why should, why is there not or Anglo-Saxon? I agree. I agree. My goodness. This sounds like, uh, this sounds like this should be a Signum project. Absolutely. My goodness. Um, yeah. Anyway. Okay. So that was the preamble. <laughs> so let's get back to the passage where, of course, uh, Frodo is going to interrupt, right? Because um, he is, um, um, uh, he is alarmed, right, at the uh, uh, declaration, Gandalf's declaration that he's going to melt all the butter in Butterbur. What did you do to him? cried Frodo in alarm. He was really very kind to us and did all that he could. Gandalf laughed. Don't be afraid, he said. I did not bite, and I barked very little. So overjoyed was I by the news that I got out th that I got out of him when he stopped quaking that I embraced the old fellow. How it had happened, I could not then guess, but I learned that you had been in Bree the night before and had gone off that morning with Strider. Strider, I cried, shouting for joy. Yes, sir, I am afraid so, sir, said Butterbur, mistaking me. He got at them, in spite of all that I could do, and they took up with him. They behaved very queer all the time they were here. Willful, you might say. Ass, fool, thrice worthy and beloved Barlaman, said I. It's the best news I have had since midsummer. It's worth a gold piece at the least. May your beer be laid under an enchantment of surpassing excellence for seven years, said I. Now I can take a night's rest, the first since I have forgotten when. Um, so... Thinking through, as we were doing last class and the beginning of this class, like what Gandalf's state of mind was, um, really helps me to contextualize Gandalf's reaction here, right? I remember thinking at various points in the past, when coming to this passage, I can understand why Gandalf is glad, but... Isn't he overreacting a little bit? I mean, things are still kind of dicey, right? I mean, like... Uh, 
Things are a bit up in the air still. Like maybe we shouldn't, you know, uh, count our Frodo's been rescued chickens before they hatched here, right? Yes, they went off with Strider, and obviously that's good news. I'm not saying it isn't, but uh, but um, but again, felt like an overreaction. But now that we've, you know, sort of imagined our way through it uh, in the way that we have, it feels much, much more sensible, right? I mean, because it's not only the news that they are with Str- it's the news that they're alive at all, right? The news that they're alive at all. Um, I, I mean, he thought, he knew, right? And he didn't just suspect, he didn't just worry, he had the evidence of his own eyes to tell him that, you know, all the evidence suggested that Frodo had been taken, and he had been riding to Bree in the desperate hope of trying to guess which one of the scattered sets of riders still had Frodo so that he could try desperately to try to pursue him and maybe try to take him back, um, you know, if he could possibly do that. And here now he's discovered that Frodo had escaped. Had escaped, right? And Brandon, I agree. There must have been some kind of uh, some kind of whiplash here. Um, uh, certainly, emotional whiplash for uh, uh, for for Gandalf. Um, yeah. Now, uh, as, as as far as Gandalf's language here, of course, uh, he is calling Butterbur a donkey. Right. By calling him an ass. Let's make sure we are understanding fully Gandalf's vocabulary there. Right. Um, and ass in the quadrupedal sense is not a dirty word. Um, it's an insult. Right. I mean, it's um, I, it's not something you generally call someone in a friendly way, though. That's certainly possible. Right. Um, yeah, Valori says, I remember being scandalized by that when I was 11. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, and coupled with fool, I mean, donkeys are understood to be, uh, you know, slow-witted and foolish. Like, that's the kind of the... the and I know, look, I'm not uh, trying to cast any shade on actual donkeys. I, I'm, I'm not, uh, uh, you know, I have nothing against any donkeys who might be listening. I'm just saying that is the traditional characterization of donkeys and the way in which that insult is generally applied. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> the Donkey Defamation League is on the phone. That's what I'm trying to avoid, Ray. I'm a little worried. I'm a little worried. Um, now, they are stubborn. That is certainly, I agree. I, I don't know donkeys well. Um, I have not spent a great deal of my time with donkeys, but I've spent enough of my time with donkeys to be able to testify to the stubbornness thing. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but, yeah, so, no, when... it. it Stubbornness is the most kind of iconic element, um, but just kind of like, uh, but it's also associated with, I think through stubbornness. It's not that donkeys are necessarily, you know, understood to be stupid, um, just like low in intelligence. Um, I have to be careful because, of course, stupid means something different when it's being used in the Lord of the Rings most of the time, too. Um, But... um, uh, although, you know, we're going to uh, uh, 
we already had that word as applied to Butterbur, right, in the conversation between, stupid, I mean, uh, between Gandalf and Frodo, and we talked about it a little bit then. Um, uh, remember what Gandalf said in Butterbur's praise to Frodo back in the previous chapter, right? That uh, he can see through a brick wall in time. Um, he is wise enough on his own ground, says Gandalf, right? Shrewd, or was he wise enough or shrewd? Wait, what, what? Does he say shrewd enough? I'm forgetting the quote. Somebody help me. Which word does he use? What adjective does he use to describe him um, in the in the in the in the brick wall sentence? Somebody somebody look it up for me. Make sure I'm getting that word right. Um, wise enough. Okay, thanks, JJ. Um, uh, he's wise enough on his own ground, and, and you know he can see through a brick wall in time. Um, but it requires time, right? It's like the slowness of and that that that. The slowness of mental processing, right, is associated with that I'm going to dig in my heels and not move kind of stubbornness uh, that donkeys have. Um, so I, that's my kind of uh, um, uh, understanding there. Um, ah, right. Emily, you're right. It's Farmer Maggot who's called shrewd. That's where I'm, that's where I'm remembering the word, uh, uh, the word shrewd. Um, yeah, so um or you guys want to talk about the 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 enchantment of surpassing excellence for 7 years. Um yes. Yes. So uh uh stroke repeating D Schwab's question um did Gandalf's speech act cause 7 years of good beer at the prancing pony? Yes. Yes. The evidence suggests Yes. Uh, when later on we meet Butterbur, uh, uh, Gandalf says that, or sorry, Butterbur says that his beer has been good and that it's been especially good ever since Gandalf put a good word on it. Um, so, yes, as far as we can tell. Now, of course, you could say it could be the placebo effect, right? But uh, I think it very likely. Um, and I agree, Mad Violinist, it feels like a, like a fairy blessing right down to the interval. Um, the seven years... Um, th- that it, you know, a seven years interval. It's both a very um, it it manages to convey both a sort of a fairy tale um, uh, atmosphere as well as a biblical one. Um, I I agree. Why seven years? Uh, I don't know. I don't know why Gandalf said seven. Like you know why seven and not 70 times seven years? Why, uh, you know, was it just because, you, you know, it, was it uh, why seven years instead of two years or three years? I don't know. Um, uh, but um, uh, but it does just seem to roll off the tongue, doesn't it? May your beer be laid under an enchantment of surpassing excellence for seven years. We know that Gandalf was not planning that. He was planning uh, uh, something for Butterbur, but it was not a blessing upon his beer, right? So the sudden about face and the blessing which Gandalf utters is clearly, um, uh, is clearly spontaneous on his part. And so that whole thing just seems to, uh, uh, just seems to, 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 to roll off Gandalf's, uh, tongue. I agree with Matt that seven is a lucky number and Gandalf feels like he just got lucky with the news about Frodo. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree. I think it's just, it's sort of, uh, 
so on the one hand, to say that it's like a fairy tale trope is not um, really an answer to the question, right? I mean, because of course it still suggests the question: Well, why is it a fairy tale trope? Um, you know, why why is seven years a thing in 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 fairy tales? And of course, I don't really know. Um, but um, uh, Kurtzman, as it makes me think of uh, of uh, Pharaoh in Exodus as well, seven years. Um, but um, uh, but yeah, I I, I think um, I think that it's yeah, I think that it's it's just the what it what you know feels to uh, um, you know to Gandalf to be the like clearly appropriate thing, um, but. Um, but I don't know that I can explain it. I don't, you know, it's, it's just, it's, uh, it's fitting. I mean, he says the fitting thing. Um, and it is a nice, it works well, Roe. I agree. It's a long time, right? I mean, seven years of blessing on his beer. That's in the career of an innkeeper. That's a significant chunk of his career. Right. And yet, um, you know, it's not, uh, it's not like he's, you know, speaking a blessing upon the beer for generations to come, right? You know, it's uh, specifically to Butterbur, uh, you know, from specifically this time. Um, yeah, I agree, GDC. Gandalf has a good idea of the exchange rate between good news and years of beer. You know, he just he just nails it uh, right off, uh, definitely. Um, yeah. It's worth a gold piece at the least, which would be worth a very great deal. Um does that mean that he actually tips Butterbur? You know, I don't know. I don't know how much coin Gandalf is carrying with him. Um, I think he doesn't actually tip him, but he's... It's interesting to me that his very first attempt to convey to Butterbur exactly how good this news is, is mercantile, right? That he, you know, he tells him the actual financial value of that news, right? And then uh, gives something in trade, right, instead of coin, uh, which I doubt he has. Um, uh, but um, uh, I don't know that he carries money either, uh, Cook of Wooten Major, but I can't help but remember that Gandalf did say to Bilbo at the end of The Hobbit that he could certainly find, you know, when, Gand when Bilbo tries to give him um, the troll money, uh, Gandalf admits that he certainly can find use for it but says share and share alike. So, um, uh, you know, I definitely, um, I definitely think that that's, uh, it's suggestive that he does use money, but does he carry it? And like, would Saruman have taken it off him when he was imprisoned? You know, uh, I don't really know. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah, I, I kind of doubt it. Um, Michael D says, "Is this the only time we see specifically we specifically see a wizard's blessing on something material like this?" I don't know. I don't know. Um, hmm. I mean, Presumably his blessing was on his own fireworks, but that's different, right? It's not exactly the same thing. Um, hmm. 
trying to think of examples. I can't think of any unless the diamond studs of the uh, old took count. Um, Yeah, there are elven blessings. And we get, of course, obviously, like Galadriel's blessing on the Shire. And Galadriel blesses the beer of the entire Shire, right? By blessing the soil of the Shire and the growth that comes in the year that follows. Um, so by going straight to the ho- the source and blessing all the hops and all the barley, she, you know, um, she manages to... Um, uh, you know, to all the grains, right, in the Shire. She uh, she gets ahead of things and blesses the beer all preemptively. Um, but it's not the same, exactly. Um, and that's a good point, JJ. JJ is pointing out that enchantment and blessing are not necessarily the same. We've been calling it a blessing, but that's not his word. His word is enchantment, under an enchantment of surpassing excellence for seven years. And that's an interesting point. It's an interesting point because well, enchantments are a little bit like um, you know, they're a little bit like the deceits of the enemy, aren't they? Um, just makes me wonder how it functions. Are these words enough? Is he... Right. Praise. That's just exactly what I was thinking. Is the beer actually... like? Is he actually affecting the beer? Or is he affecting the people who drink the beer? Right? Um, that's, that is exactly the question uh, that... Um, exactly the question that I have. Um... Right. Is he blessing enchanting the kegs? Um, okay, you're right, Fort Thoughtless. We need another word search. Let's think about the use of the word enchantment. Somebody give us some examples of where the word enchantment is used. What can we derive? What can we figure about this word from context? What are the implications of that word? Right, we get enchantment certainly in the Baron and Luthien poem, Mad Violinist. Definitely. Uh, restrict it to Lord of the Rings usages. I, I exclude The Hobbit just because Tolkien's patterns of word usage are different, right? It's not that it's totally irrelevant, but they're different. I mean, you know, the word tobacco, enough said, right? Um, so he uses words differently in The Hobbit. So, um, uh, Okay, right, the words of Saruman are described as an enchantment, right? Um, uh, Suddenly another voice spoke, low and melodious, its very sound an enchantment, right? So the voice of Saruman is called an enchantment. Um, I'm thinking of... uh, Enchantment. I've always associated with Tolkien... You thinking of how he uses the word um, in on fairy stories, 
thinking of fairy and drama and the way in which elvish art kind of draws you in and, and um, is like what happens to Bilbo when he's listening to the dwarf song in chapter one of The Hobbit, right? That experience. Um, what was happening to Frodo in the Hall of Fire when he was listening to the Elvish music, which segued into Bilbo's song. That experience when you are sort of transported out of the primary world that surrounds you, you know, at least in your mind, at least sort of, you know, perhaps in spirit in some sense, uh, and into the, you know, artistically created secondary world of an artist or a singer. That is the thing I have been, um, want to associate with the word enchantment, because that's how Tolkien uses the word enchantment in on fairy stories when he's kind of theorizing about this stuff. Um, Good. Yeah. So, uh, JJ, if I'm remembering that quote that you just gave, there is actually from Frodo's experience in the Hall of Fire, right? Um, I think so. I think so. Um, okay. So there are 12 matches for the base word enchant. Um, oh, interesting. Yes. The, the, uh, Praise, that's a great one. I would never have remembered that one. That uh, the musical instruments pulled from the crackers at Bilbo's birthday party uh, have enchanting tone. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely... It's definitely... Um, I mean, several of you are talking about the Latin roots and stuff. Absolutely. And, and Lupilia, exactly. The musical element is important. Or at least the chanting part, right? The, that it is involved, it's about singing something into being, right? Um, not literally into primary being, necessarily, but into secondary, into, into the kind, not just into a secondary world, um, like a, a, a good book might create, but um, the kind of secondary world that draws you into it such that you mistake it for the primary world. Again, that's like the context of enchantment from on fairy stories. So, so I'm bringing it back to beer. Is he going to lay an enchantment on the beer? So is he drawing the beer into a secondary world? Is he giving the beer itself a kind of transporting experience? Or is he conferring enchantment upon those? This praises why I, along with you, was thinking about, um, is it the beer that's affected or the people who drink it who are affected, right? Is, uh, is the enchantment that is laid upon the beer, um, or rather the beer is laid under the enchantment, um, which makes it sound like the beer is being put into a dream state, right? Laid under an enchantment. Um, so the enchantment acts upon the drinker of the beer, so they get transported to a secondary world in which the beer is awesome. <laughs> I mean, is that, is that how it works? Um, uh, Mad Violinist, yeah, maybe uh, his enchantment 
inspires Butterbur himself in the making of the beer, right? Maybe it's the making of the beer that is uh, sort of inspired uh, in that way. Um, yeah. Good. Pontine is uh, pointing out. So the hobbits are enchanted by the spell of Tom Bombadil's words in Tom Bombadil's house. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Fred Rock Paper, I would say that we could say an enchantment isn't physically real, but a very effective secondary world. Yeah, that's generally the not real in the sense of existing in the primary world. That is the sense that I've generally seen of it. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, or Valori suggests it could be upon the inn itself, right? Um, yeah. Valori, I don't think we know who the Maya of beer is, um, which, you know, if this really were a finished work, there would be one, right? Um, so Tolkien was really falling down on the job there. Um, but, um, yeah. Yeah, I... Because, yeah, JJ is pointing out that it's not just as may your beer be laid under an enchantment of surpassing excellence. It does really sound like the enchantment is being laid not on beer, but on Butterbur. It's not on the beer, but on the brewer. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rowan suggests that Butterbur's beer has a strong presence in both the seen and the unseen uh, worlds thereafter. Uh, quite, quite, quite possibly. Quite possibly. Um, yeah. I mean, it is... He is wanting, if he is wanting to bestow a blessing, he's, Gandalf is not, his interest isn't bestowing a blessing on everybody who comes to the pony, but on Butterbur himself, right? He is, he is wanting to do something good for, uh, uh, Butterbur himself. Um, yeah, yeah, um. Yeah, yeah. Um, Lupilia, I agree. An incantation is a less good thing than an enchantment, even though from a, an etymological standpoint, incantation and enchantment sound like the same word, right? Um just one is more Latin than the other. Um, what more directly Latin than the other? But I agree with you. Incantation, um, that's the word that's used of what the Barrowite does, right? Um, and we don't really get incantations. I'm trying to think of any examples of a positive incantation uh, in Tolkien's world, and I can't think of any. Um, uh, yeah, I, th so I think that it is an enchantment on Butterbur, on reflection. Uh, may your beer, JJ, that's the that's the, the point that really convinced me. May your beer be laid under an enchantment of surpassing excellence for seven years. Um, and that is certainly worth more than a gold piece to Butterbur, right? I mean, he is still um, being blessed in a very direct and mercantile way, right? He is a tradesman, and his trade is being blessed. Um Yes. And Kurtzimus, absolutely, the ring verse would be an incantation 
um, the one ring to rule them all verse. Yes, yes. Um, that would be, I would call that an incantation. Um, yes. Um, yeah, well, fourth Dauntless, thinking about Goad, well, we'll come to that eventually, but um, I would call that enchantment, but it's a little bit different. I was thinking about that. I had a footnote in my head to that verse when I was thinking, when I was describing enchantment earlier on and talking about secondary and primary worlds. But, um, uh, but we'll get there. We'll get there later on. Um, okay. Thrice worthy and beloved Barlaman. I love that sentence. Um, Butterbur's statement. I love his, yes, sir, I'm afraid so, sir. Um, he got at them in spite of all that I could do, and they took up with him. This, These lines, of course, are made twice as funny by the irony, right? Um, you know, Butterbur is the only one. Um, you know, we, we talked about moments where Tolkien and Gandalf were deliberately employing dramatic irony, things that we understood that nobody else understood. Um, here, he's using dramatic irony in a sort of a funnier sense in which the speaker is the only one who doesn't understand how funny his words are, right? Uh, we know, Gandalf knows, everybody listening to Gandalf's story knows uh, how funny, uh, because of course, especially Aragorn himself, right, who's sitting right there. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, yes, I think that, uh, it's, it's, it is especially funny. The, the, the irony, he got at them in spite of all I could, I tried to protect them, you know, from that Strider fellow, but he got at them and they took up with him. Um, you know, and then his kind of uh, telling on, you know, Frodo and they behave very queer all the time. They were here willful, you might say. Right. He tried to tell him he tried to help him. But, you know, um, despite his, you know, cutting remarks about how they may know their own business, you know, uh, nevertheless, they still they still didn't listen to him. Um, yeah. <laughs> and Mad Violinist, you're right. It's also amusing to reflect on how actually incompetent Butterbur was at preventing Strider from getting at them. Yeah, he, uh, um, uh, if that was all he could do to prevent Strider uh, from, I mean, like maybe, maybe step one, I mean, he did prevent Strider from going in and interrupting them during their dinner before they went to the common room. Um, but of course, if he really wanted to keep Strider from getting at them, he might have, oh, I don't know, not suggested they come to the common room where Strider was sitting, right? That also might possibly have helped. Um, but yeah, Matt, I do think that Aragorn would find this part of the story very funny. Uh, and certainly Frodo and Sam, and I no, have no doubt Bilbo, uh, would find this part um, especially uh, funny. Now, he could theoretically, I say theoretically, Aranas, eject Strider from the premises, um, but I don't know if he would try it, because I doubt he could enforce it. Um, he's clearly too intimidated uh, by Strider. Um, I think he'd need a very good reason indeed, because he'd need to get some backup. Um, probably even more than just Knob and Bob. 
uh, to try to uh, uh, throw Strider out onto the curb. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I agree, Dolores Stroke. Apparently, Butterbur hasn't had time enough to see through the brick wall of Aragorn. Yeah, he 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 hasn't. I mean, we can see how effective Aragorn's disguise has been, right? I mean, he is um, not only is you know, his true identity not known in Bree, um, but the, uh, the false appearance that he's been throwing up, right? The, um, you know, the, the rascally look that he has cultivated in Bree, um, has, has, it, it has worked out, right? It has gone through. He has, he's, he has a bad reputation in Bree and that's, that's the goal, right? And of course it's a, it's a particularly effective disguise to, from the agents of the enemy, right? Because they're not going to be looking for, you know, uh, this guy who's probably like an outlaw in a cut purse. I mean, you know, you, uh, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's that Strider could well be a highwayman. I mean, for all they know. You know, they're not going to say it to his face, and I doubt they have any evidence of it, right? But, I mean, that's the kind of, you know, when he says he's, he's you know, the word rascal, as we talked about before, it's a strong word. Um, you know, that, that really means something. Um, but, uh, so anyway, yeah, it's worked. It's definitely, it's definitely worked. Um, yeah. Um, so, let's see, uh... And JJ, I agree that Butterbur is probably not going to throw him out uh, so long as he pays uh, for his beer and doesn't start trouble on the premises. Uh, yeah, he's not going to he's not going to court trouble. Um, and uh, and and what's more, remember also that Strider, though he's questionable, right? Though he's um, uh, you know a um, a dubious character in lots of ways. Um, he's also has done no harm in Bree. Um, and, uh, he, Butterbur knows no certain harm of him, even though he might have a, a, a questionable reputation. So, so yeah, I don't think that he's going to, um, um, wouldn't have reason to outlaw him. And he's a regular cook. Exactly. That's the other thing I was going to say. He might be a rascal, but he's their rascal. I mean, he's he's well known in Bree, and familiarity, um, you know, is uh, is going to go quite a ways. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, Kurtzimus points out that he slams the door in the face of the Black Rider without asking the Nazgul if he wanted a beer. Uh, yeah, not true, but it's different, right? I mean. Uh, uh, Strider may be creepy, but he's not that creepy. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And Strider can tell a good story. That is the one thing that he praises him for. And again, something for which he doubt, you know, his, his value in Bree, he's not just hated in Bree, right? Um, Strider, I mean. Um, you know, I mean, he seems to kind of balance things. On the one hand, he clearly has cultivated the, you know... Uh, the persona of a, a dangerous person. Like he's, um, you know, he could be a criminal. He could well be. A, they don't know. Right. He's never done anything wrong to anybody in Bree. But, you know, 
they would not be surprised to discover that Strider was in fact a highwayman. Um, but they don't have, you know, again, he's never done anything bad in Bree and he does tell a good story, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's some, you know, there are some good sides to having Strider around. Um, and that clearly would be part of what Strider would be going for, right? Aragorn would not want to get run out of town every time he came in. He would want to be able to connect and, 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 and get the news from folks and everything else. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, he seems, Aragorn seems to have maintained a fairly delicate, uh, 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 balance there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, willful. Willful. Um, willful is a really interesting word. Um, it's uh, particularly comical because, of course, what Butterbur seems to mean by it is they made up their own decisions and did not listen to my advice, right? Somebody who doesn't listen to Butterbur's wise advice and take it is clearly acting willfully. Right. Uh, you know, willful in the bad sense. Um, and uh, and yeah, it is a word that's used of errant children for Dauntless. Absolutely. Um, a willful child is, is a stubborn child. Right. One that uh, one that that doesn't mind you. Right. Um, and that's that is how Frodo was acting. Right. You know, Butterbur tried to tell him, but he was willful. Um, yeah. C. Schwab says it makes her think of toddlers. Yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, um, that the kind of regretful parental attitude that Butterbur seems to adopt towards the hobbits retroactively right through that sentence is, I think, particularly funny, given how much less, you know, he knows than uh, uh, than than they do. Um, and yeah, uh, Thor and I agree. It is a nice way of saying stubborn or disobedient. Um, yeah, he's not being rude. Right. He's not being rude. Willful, you might say. Right. Um, n- remember, he's still trying to get on Gandalf's good side and afraid that Gandalf is going to be. I mean, Gandalf's rather hasty. Right. So he's afraid Gandalf's going to be very angry at him indeed. Um, but uh, but yes, the segue directly, Rowan, from willful to ass fool. Right. Uh, I think is very much um, Gandalf throwing that right back at him. Right. Frodo was willful. Right. Um, and he goes straight to calling uh, to characterizing Butterbur as an ass. Um, that's interesting. Butterbur or Butterbur Bjarnas owner. Is this Butterbur being a bit racist, treating adult hobbits like children? Hmm. It's possible. It's you know, is could there be an overtone of treating the, the little ones, you know, the little ones? Uh, in a slightly condescending manner, maybe. I mean, I don't hear that in the other things that uh, Butterbur says. I mean, you could say that you know he um, has something of that of a condescending tone when he's talking about his Hobbit servants, but he's talking about his servants, so you know it kind of works there. Um, uh, but um, and they are right. I mean. Pippin certainly is underage, um, but um, but yeah, I, I don't think it's their age really that 
is leading to this? And is it just their height? I mean, is it just a, a sort of a hobbitist, a hobbit, hobbitist thing for him to say? Um, you know, uh, that, you know, just, just being sort of racist in that way. I can't rule it out. I can't rule it out. Again, everything that we see about the general culture, everything we're told about the culture of Bree, and everything that we see especially about... I don't detect that tone... Um, like when... Um, when Butterbur is talking to Mr. Mugwort, um, who, who I always suspected to be a hobbit, because um, we're told the Mugworts are numerous among the hobbits of Bree, aren't we? Um... Uh, I think that I, I don't I don't hear him being condescending uh, to Mr. Mugwort. Um, uh, yeah, I, I I and and certainly when um, uh, when Butterbur later on when they come back through is talking about the battle uh, and those who were killed. Um, again, I don't see. I don't see him acting that way either. Um, and exactly, Green Great Dragon, everything we're told about the cohabitation, um, about the excellent arrangement of things in Bree, suggests that there is not, you know, a sort of a perceived uh, racial divide between hobbits, and, and that's what's excellent about the arrangement at Bree. Um, uh, so, yeah, yeah. Um, Katriana, now that seems a little bit more likely that if there is any sort of prejudice on Butterbur's part, it could be against Shire Hobbits in particular. But, see, I would think... Um, it seems to me that the stereotypes, Catriona, about Shire Hobbits are about them being, like, snooty, right? Um, Barlamin is all for Bree in most matters, Gilgonthir, exactly as you say. But again, that sounds to me... You know, like somebody speaking up for a poor suburb of a rich town. You know what I mean? Um, see, I'm not sure. Yeah, they would be hicks from the country, but I'm not sure they're not gentry from the country, D-May. I wonder. I mean... Yeah. The conversation that I'm thinking about here, it's the later one. It's not the earlier one. It's the one where they're talking about pipeweed in The Return of the King on the way back through. And the way in which Butterbur says, I'm all for Brie in most matters, though I'm all for Brie in most matters, sounds like someone who is fighting against a general inferiority thing. Rather than someone who is a su- who is himself, you know, pretentious about the claims of his hometown. I mean, he he he's a supporter of Bree, right? Not because necessarily he believes that Bree is obviously, and that the Shire are all hicks and they can't may do anything right. That doesn't sound like the tone there. It sounds to me more like, um, yes, we know you Shire people think that everything that you guys have and do and make is the best, but I'm all for Bree in most matters, right? Um, 
It Sounds Like Hometown Pride uh, aired 84, exactly. And like the kind of hometown pride which might in fact not be well-grounded, right? Um, like the kind of thing somebody who knows that like their town does not in fact produce as nice things as the next town over does produce. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but, Kersimus, you are no question right that... Uh, our hobbits did not cover themselves in glory in the Prancing Pony, 100%. So, um, his commentary, his characterization of them, I mean, if he is sort of speaking of them as children who failed to listen to wise advice, he's not without justification, right? I mean, they did act very queer all the time that they were there, right? Um, uh, And his qualification, willful, you might say, is a little tentative, right? He's not just pegging them as clueless babes in the woods, right? But, like, you might say they were acting willful in that way. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Frodo's alarm... I'm, I'm talking about this paragraph, these paragraphs backwards to forwards here. Um... Gandalf's uh, Gandalf's characterization. So I love Frodo's alarm. What did you do to him? He was really very kind to us and did all that he could. I love Frodo speaking up for Butterbur. Right, like he didn't he didn't deserve death. Right, um, and then Gandalf's laughter. I did not bite, and I barked very little. Uh, so overjoyed was I by the news that I got out of him when he stopped quaking that I embraced the old fellow. I, it sounds like, so, uh, Gandalf does not, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, Gandalf does not say he didn't bark at all, right? So, I'm trying to imagine how the, um, I'm trying to imagine how the conversation must have gone, right? Gandalf must have burst in, right? Shadowfax still standing in the, you know, in the yard outside, and, and Gandalf comes bursting in, uh, and, you know, Butterbur is terrified, um, and um, he, um, what does Gandalf say? You know, uh, Gandalf is certainly not going to say, did you, have you heard anything from, you know, Frodo, right? He thinks Frodo's gone. So he's going to come in and say, um, yeah, Emily, I could easily imagine that Gandalf probably started yelling as he went up the steps to the front door, you know, right, as he's coming up and, and, uh, and, you know, there's Barrowman sinking down to the floor in terror, right, as Gandalf comes bursting in. Um, And, uh, you know, I I think he starts off by yelling at him about the letter, right? And it's, uh, um, not until like Butterbur is quaking so badly at the initial barrage that he can't even, you know, get his words out. But when he finally does um, get his news out, then, uh, you know, that's when Gandalf realizes. Um, yeah, I think Gandalf came in uncloaked too. I definitely think Gandalf came in uncloaked. Um, and, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Matt points out, of course, that we have to remember, uh, Butterbur only remembered Gandalf's letter last night. Like, he had completely forgotten that it existed. So it was 
it was just a few, a matter of hours ago that he even realized that he forgot, right? And look, I'm a very forgetful person. I feel for Butterbur here. I always feel for Butterbur in this passage. I totally, you know, that would be me. That would absolutely be me. Um, even his, his excuse that he makes to Frodo sounds so familiar to me, right? No, I meant to do it, right? And then I couldn't in the first day and not in the second day. And then one thing drives out another. And I'm like, man, I feel you, Butterbur. I feel you. So been there. Um, but um, uh, <laughs> I don't want to struggle. Imagine Gandalf saying, I'm here to melt butter and take names and I'm all out of names. Yeah, exactly. Um, but um, anyway, yeah. So um, he's, you know, now. so like having just gotten over maybe, his, I mean, still feeling his guilt from like realizing that he forgot the letter and that he caused he apparently has caused a great deal of mischief, and then hours later Gandalf comes busting in. I mean, he's really, really got to be thinking about that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that that and and the amount of time that it would likely have taken to get from Gandalf bursting in the door to um, uh, Butterbur actually successfully conveying news to Gandalf has to be long enough that Gandalf's sudden shift is um, uh, very understandably difficult for Butterbur to comprehend, right? Because Gandalf goes from furious, doubtless, furious, to Strider... <laughs> Strider, uh, you know, and in that context, like having just been probably yelled at a good deal, right? For him to suddenly shout for joy, but to have the the joy mistaken, uh, uh, in context, seems to me very likely. Um, oh man, I agree, Matt. Gandalf's arrival must have felt like magic to Butterbur, um, of a very uncomfortable kind, right? Like his own. You know, the discovery of his guilt has like conjured Gandalf, right? Uh, like a like a specter suddenly bursting out upon him. Um, yeah, it must have been really, really bad. Um, okay, well, I'm out of time. So I should have known. I was actually thinking about this right before. I, you know, so when I was giving the title to our discussion today, and I gave the title, the title was inspired by the second slide instead of the first slide. As soon as I did that, I was like, I, I, I always regret it. Whenever I give a title based on a, not the first slide, I always regret it. It's like a, it's like a jinx, you know, that we're definitely not going to get through one slide. Um, and, uh, um, and of course we didn't. And of course I didn't realize I was going to jinx things to the extent of like, the technical difficulties I was having, which further delayed the beginning of class. But anyway, there it is. Um, uh, yeah. So, um, anyway, the title was about how Gandalf is causing inconvenience for the witch King, but we will have to wait until next week, uh, to talk about the, uh, awkwardness that Gandalf causes to the witch King, uh, because it is definitely getting late. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, I know, Matt, exactly. And then, like, insult to injury. We spent, like, half the class sitting on the title slide. 
Yeah, there it was. Exactly. Um, so anyway, we'll come back to the Witch King and his predicament, but be thinking about it. Remember back to our discussion of the Witch King's predicament and then think about what, what impact does, you know, we, of course, Gandalf is going to tell us about the confrontation, right? But think about this whole situation from the Witch King's perspective, um, from Gandalf's sudden arrival there in Bree to, um, uh, to, you know, the, the flight to, to the Ford and what this means for the Witch King. So we'll, We'll talk about that next time. And then maybe get past Gandalf's narrative. Who knows? Um, but uh, anyway, okay. Um, thank you. Mudmore says, may your tech support be laid under an enchantment of surpassing excellence for seven years. Uh, my tech support will really appreciate that, Mudmore. That's very kind of you uh, to, uh, Amen. to speak that in. Absolutely. So very good. Well, thanks for Laurie. Glad you could join us this week. And we will transition here to our field trip. I forgot we don't have to say goodbye to anyone. That's right. We don't have to say goodbye to anybody now. Yeah. Well, hi again, everybody. Good to be back. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm just picturing, like, you know, Barlamin in the inn. And there's a low yeah. thumping, and he looks over at a mug. And there's these, that's like that scene from Jurassic Park, the ripples <laughs> in the beer. Right. The ripples in the beer. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Yep. No, I see it. I see it. I, I definitely think um, um, that's uh, very likely. I, I, it almost makes me wonder if you know uh, uh, Gandalf actually caused property damage when he when he arrived. Like I could imagine that. Like you know, I talked about he Gandalf bursting. Threatened to blow Frodo's door through the house and, and, and through the hill and out the other end. So. Exactly what I was thinking. Did he actually? Uh, 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 you know. When he comes through the front door, does he actually does he actually burst the front? He could have done, you know. It's it's uh, it's not impossible. Panting pony sign in flames. <laughs> yes, yeah. You know, he'd have apologized afterwards, but uh, uh, but yeah. yeah, I could definitely see that. Um, yeah. Okay. So I think we um, we had talked last week about se- several people set up um, uh, uh, hunter uh, sp- spots. I don't know how it works. I've never played a hunter. Um, but I think Dime uh, and a couple others were saying they could port us directly back to the dwarf spot that we were looking at last week. Oh, sure. Um, so I don't know if we've got anyone here who can do Maybe we've lost our hunters. I don't know. Um, okay. I think it was Dime and Rosie Lass. And Rosie Lass, right. Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, All right. Let me fellow up everyone first then. Great. Yeah. Let's, we'll I'm already up, there. Fellow up here. Okay. That'll prevent us having to run all the way from, uh, from Blom- Blomgard. Yeah. Blomgard. All right. Let's see. Are we missing anyone? Did I get everyone. Okay. I think we have seven in the room, though. Unfortunately, and I, I'm not. I don't think Dima is with us oh, tonight. Oh, sorry. There's a Anthro. Oh, Anthro. Anthro. Yeah. All right. Yeah. You're blending into the floor there, sorry. That's so true. Um, uh, but yeah, I think that's... Yeah, that's all we can do in the one fellowship, though, right? It's all we can port into one place? Yeah, yeah. Oh, hang on. Dime says she's on her way. So she'll she'll come in all and right. she can she can port the rest. But though we've got we've to gotta get her in the fellowship, so... Yeah, if you Just send me add- an email... Mm-hmm. Add me to the raid once you get here. Okay, cool. So, um, so last time we were looking at 
the ruins uh, above the Gladden Fields. Uh, Valori, my primary question as I was looking uh, at the ruins was trying to figure out, did they predate the disaster of the Gladden Fields or did they post-date the disaster of the Gladden Fields? And I decided that I thought they post-dated it. Uh, my theory, the theory I came up with last time was that the those dwarf buildings were constructed, the dwarf outlet from Moria there was constructed as a trade outlet to Minas, to, to, to Gondor, basically post huh. post establishment of Gondor. So post Isildur. Um, and, uh, uh, so that it wasn't, cause I was trying to imagine like during the disaster, cause whoever was sitting like at the top of the waterfall there would have had a wonderful view of the disaster of the Gladden fields, you know, and are we really to imagine that the, uh, uh, you know, the dwarves of, um, of Moria there Hi. did not, um, uh, are, is there anyone who can get there by themselves? Sorry. I'm oh yeah. It's okay. No, Dime can. So, and she's in the second group, so that's good. So the first group can... All right, so if we got the first group ready, then we can get the other one. Do we have to be physically proximate, or is it just being in the fellowship that's okay? No, we just have to be in the same uh, group together. Great, great. Okay. I I don't have this port, so someone has to... Close-ish? Rosie Lassett's got it, so... There she is, she's looking around for a contact lens. Mm -hmm. Okay... There we go. So I think I know what you're saying. I think if I get a look at it, I'll have a better idea. Yeah. So that that was there was oh at the very least I would say there was nothing here to contradict the idea. Uh, one thing that I definitely was fe- felt that I was finding was that I did not see any clear evidence of um, of different stages of architecture. Yes. It seemed to be just one. It's like whenever it was built, it was just built at one time. It's clearly old, but you know, Third Age has been around for a long time now. So, you know, mm-hmm. something could be two thousand years old and still be, you know, past Isildur. So, um, yeah. so that's fine. Um, Sunburst patterns, interesting. I have a green dot free floating off my mini map. Yeah, me too. Is that a new thing? I've never seen that before. Must be a new thing. I'm sure its purpose will become clear with further use. <laughs> if you hover your cursor over, it should tell you who it is. It well, yeah, but like they're not on my map, so like, why are they any? Yeah, yeah, they're they yeah. I got all? the same thing. Yeah, it's that's, like that's three weird. inches away from the map. yeah from the mini map. That's got to be an error, and it doesn't. They don't come up as anything when I mouse over them. Yep, no. Very puzzling. Yeah. That's okay. Just a random... I was just seeing... There was a green dot sitting on the hillside, and I'm like, why is there a green dot on that hillside? Yeah. No? no Lori, can't you add me to the group and add me and Corey's side so I can keep him show well, please? Oh, uh, yeah, because I want to go play with the giants. Oh, oh sorry. Uh, sorry. Uh, having a little trouble hearing. What was that again? No, so, um, yeah, you need to add her to yeah. the raid and then put her into my Oh, group right, so sure. Where's the... Okay, I need your IM handle. Sorry. No, she's uh, right there. Curessa. Curessa, yeah. Okay, Curessa. Yep. Name's on. Green stand wants there. in too. Yep, I see it. Yep. So I think and I think that what we're stand. seeing here is a trade outpost from Moria, because as I was suggesting, this is uh, as good uh, an entry point as any to a, to come out to use the Great River as a as a trade uh, thing. I, I also can't help but think of Aragorn's comment 
when they're going down the Great River at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring, when he talks about how, um, uh, you know, when he talks about trade coming down the river and then Boromir gives his sort of semi snarky remark, right, where he's like, you know, seldom has any ship come down from the north in my time. And Aragorn, with what I always felt was a certain uh, admirable amount of um, uh, restraint, does not say I wasn't talking about your lifetime, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> Condor's been around a lot longer than you. Um and so uh, he seems to suggest the fact that there there was, in fact, trade coming down to Gondor, not maybe during Boromir's lifetime, but during the previous eras of Gondor. Um, yeah. And so that's one of the things that suggested to me this possibility of this as a trade outpost, um, which then would have definitely been established basically after the glory days of Gondor, when the dwarves of Moria would surely have seen Gondor as a very desirable trade partner. Yeah, JJ oh, yeah. says, Gondor is older than Boromir? Can we prove this? Yeah. yeah. Well, I know, it's hard to remember that he is not representative of all of Gondor, but uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, was there anything else? Um, Druid's Fire, do you remember, was there anything else in the... Did we want to go upstairs? Um, we could if we wanted to do a little bit more looking around at exactly what the dwarven uh, stuff, and it also Valori hasn't seen it. Right. So nope. okay. So let's let's go upstairs. So you said there's okay. a path that goes. We went down at water level before, but if we go, what do we just follow this path up? Did you oh, add yeah. green stand to the group as well? Because that's JJ. Uh, uh, I don't see an invite or an ask from him. He has to IM me. Okay. Send her a tell, please. Yeah, there you go. Oh, there you are. Sorry, couldn't see you on screen before. Okay. There we go. And these cool, are cool. all the the lost spirits who are here. These are these are Dunedain related lost spirits. Are these uh-huh. Isildur associated lost spirits? Well, they're not dwarves. Yeah, they're probably from the 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 same group of people that got uh, slaughtered. Where Isildur was. Right. They're okay, definitely I'll... human. Yeah, they're definitely human. I wonder human. if their remains washed up all the way up here or something. Yeah, it makes it does make me wonder why. Now here's a like a gloom water. It is a gloom water. Yeah. A gloom water. There's no a, water over here. Tree. Well, they, it's it's they were up a little bit above water level, but it's well, I mean, usually the, you see them in puddles. Yeah, the bottom half of this is flooded. Well, there's I an agree, aqueduct cause... above us. Ah, well, oh, there you yep, go. Uh, you got to watch spirits out for those. Travel by oh, yeah. Ex- exactly, those those water spirits of the aqueduct, right? I mean, it's yeah, as opposed to the beasties that can't cross water. It's like it's like the express bypass of the you know water spirit world, right? Well, you got oh, man, I just realized uh, Dracula could have been totally stymied by an aqueduct. Oh man, that is so true. Check out these dwarven uh, statues. Oh yeah, the, I like the sunburst. Wait, themes the, and these oh, these big there are the statues. inverted V's. These are this is some fun stuff here. They're definitely older in construction style. Yeah, they do look than different. anything we've seen before. Yeah, definitely oh, different next. from the from the long beardy ones. The modern like the 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 you know, um, what do we look call it? My axe guy. The thoracic period. Um, yeah, from the, the, <laughs> yeah, uh, the, the, the later one. Um, JJ is also correct that it does, they do look rather like giant foosball figures. Um, 
That is true. Yes. I could easily yeah, see. In that's fact, right. it would be a really cool foosball table that had the figures like this. That would be In case awesome. anyone's interested. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway. Um, the chest piece is uh, on these statues is what interests me the most. The kind of oh, yeah. the swirly patterns, which almost looks face? like a face. It looks like an abstract face. I don't know if it's meant to be it's, an abstract face. It's like stuff we've seen at the Barrow Downs. It does look rather like that. Um, and I don't know how to understand that. I mean, obviously, these are obviously dwarf statues, and uh, this is obviously a dwarf place, but um, some kind of... Uh, they must be evoking something in particular. My only guess is that they're... Because it's not exactly the same swirly design that we saw in the Barrow Downs. Um, it, it, it recalls it a little bit, but it's not precisely the same. Um, also notice the, the green stone that's very similar to the green stone obelisks we see mm-hmm. denoting dwarf territory. Right, back in Arid Lewin. Yeah, sure. Yeah, the yeah. old ones, the particularly old obelisks. The sort of Malachite-looking things or Jasper. Yeah, yeah. I'm noticing the symbol on the dwarf's chest is also on the pillar. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Along with that sunburst again. Yeah, that sunburst we've seen in lots of places, lots of dwarf places, which is interesting. What but if yeah, it's supposed to be like the Arkenstone? On the underside of the arch, yeah, there's both of them. Yeah. The stone? Uh, yeah, uh, no, the sunburst. The sunburst. What if the sunburst is supposed I wouldn't to be an think Arkenstone? So. This the has got to predate the Arkenstone. No, maybe not. Because the Arkenstone... Yeah, no, this has got to predate the Arkenstone. Um, okay. Just seems weird having a sun motif on dwarves, which sort of doesn't really mix, does it? No, I've thought that ever since I first went to Moria, where you see that all the time. The sunburst thing. Oh, yeah. It's all oh, over Moria. Yeah, it's all over the place. I haven't had an in-depth look at Moria yet. I remember that. It's one of the few things I remember from my Grifflet Moria marathon. Um I was almost delusional by the end of it, but I remember seeing those at the beginning of it. Um, Can't wait to go in depth there. Yeah, that'll be fun. Oh boy. What's the, what's the, what's up with the red dots? We saw these windows from down at water level before. Yeah. Yeah. These look like the ones you see in, in the waterworks. Okay. In Moria. All right, I don't remember them. It looks almost like sealing wax, you know. I mean, like a yeah, or, or some kind of rose or flower or something. Right. I wish I could get a better look. I wish it was daytime. Yeah. Like some sort of crest or something. Maybe it's that same uh, rose crest in the diamond next to the the portcullis arch on either side. Hmm. Maybe. Sort of a cabbage rose over there. Right. 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 Yeah, perhaps. Interesting. We've got the diamond shapes on the portcullis itself. I love these strong inverted V's, too. They're beautiful. Wait, which Shame ones? about all the felt. These, these big, strong... Uh, oh, right, yeah. A-frames oh, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, right. Yep, yep. 
Yeah. The statues are clearly made from different stone. You know, I wonder if the statues were moved here. Those look a little older than everything These else. These do look assembled, and the fact there's moss growing in some of them indicates there's some cracks that is not right. like, uh, that's not your usual dwarf crack that can hide a door. Right, that they came out with, uh, you know, like Lego dwarf statues that they assembled on the spot. Or, you know, it's an Ikea statue. It's an Ikea statue. <laughs> they transported it from from somewhere, um, you know, from somewhere in indoors and, and brought them out here, which could explain why they're older. The stone looks a little different. They look a little bit more worn. But okay, there are, are there other things? Are there living mobs? I do like this really colorful. <gasps> stained glass that we get. We don't get a full thing of it. Tulips. It looks like that. Or like um, the um, the open Bible symbol you often see on like Protestant stained glass. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. It's like the same shape. Anyway, it's it's very interesting. Yeah. Is that not work that we usually see? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think this place doesn't look a day over, you know, 2,500 years old to me. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that, that it's... That's about right. Because then this up here, we've got these big archways, which were... Like, where does this road lead? Because this looks, like, particularly triumphant, so I'm thinking this would... Um, there would be... The shipping dock would have been down below where we were looking last yeah. week. But I'm thinking there's probably a road that, you know, so that like Gondorian visitors could come in and, uh, you know, they could sort of welcome them in. But I'm thinking that up here is where we're going to get like a, oh, well, mm-hmm. well, this was a bit of a blind. Hey, look, I made it across. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Here's the entrance well. right here. Yeah, Don't now, go too far up the hill. Okay, I won't go with it. What's in here? Oh, wait, this is, just a, this is just a pass. This is, the this is the pass of Karathras. Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, you see. So there you go. So they've got to pass over the mountains, too. So this provides passage over the mountain and under the mountain and then down the river. So they could not only trade their own goods from inside the mountains... But they could also throw up a toll to people who wanted to transport goods over the mountains. So you this... can get a decent look at the red dot up here on the hill. Oh, the stained glass red dot? Yeah. Just where the... Not up the actual hill. I oh, right, not up the actual hill, here. right I'm, down I'm way down, down here. Okay, right. By, by the t- up the yeah. smaller hill, not the pass itself. Up the shoulder of the hill. Yeah. Right, gotcha. Did you guys see this big purple energy back here where I, where I got stuck? Uh, there's, like, some kind of purple... Miasma thing. Miasma emanating from the ground. I thought it best not to inquire. Um, you yeah. can't click on it, so I guess we're okay. <laughs> right. It, it seemed to do me no harm, uh, but... Um, so I poked it. Hmm. Oh, yeah. That's that guy again. 
That's interesting. Interesting. So the dark center up close here looks less dark than it did. Still can't make out what it is, though. It's like a thumbprint. See, I'm going with sealing wax again. You know, blob of wax, and then you stamp. Um, Tomas, this this one does look especially like an eye. I don't think it's the red eye. It's something quite different. But... um, Mm. Uh, so, like, maybe this was a notary in contracts. Yeah, notary in contracts place, exactly. Right? Well, no, if you're, if you're on a trade route, yeah, those the sign of contracts are important. The sign of the sealing wax, yeah, sure. Oh, this is looking all red horn. Yeah, Lodi. Yeah, yeah. yeah if you path. follow up the path, you will wind up in the red horn lines, and you can't get back. Lovely. Like Caradras, that one. Yeah, there's a bit of a cliff. Yeah. Okay. Oh wow. Okay. Well, right. now I gotta go up there. <laughs> <laughs> right. If we can't come, if we can't ever return again, all right. Let's go look at the giants briefly because I don't know that we're gonna need to spend a whole lot of time with the giants. I just want to see them. Yeah. I just want to see them because I'm curious to look at a like modern Lotro Giants uh, installment. Yeah. Oh. What's today's giant wearing? Exactly. That's what I want to know. So I guess since I'm not playing a burglar, we should go around. (laughs) Or just jump in the water. But will jumping in the water not kill me? It did. So don't do that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right, we'll go around. Maybe I'll even mount up. Let's mount up and go around. Why not? Okay. Uh Uh-oh. No, it just was very wasn't very deep. That's all. Oh, you you dove into the shallow water. See, you gotta you know, you gotta be I careful. I knew somebody about. was going to, so I figured you gotta be careful. I think the writing was a bad idea. We're writing. all getting like massive fear effects. I see. Right. Well, eh, survival so far. Be fine. No, we're not in the water. We're riding down the hill. Oh, gotcha. Oh man. Oh, there's spooks everywhere. What's going on? Yeah, I feel like I'm kiting half of the ghosts in in uh, Rovan. Oh, there goes my horse. He he held out pretty. Just keep pretty running. Long. Just keep running. Yeah, no oh, worries. my horse still going. I broke a leg. I'm trailing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Ain't that always the way. Oh. And I'm down. Oh no! I think, I I think we're down to the water now. Yeah. All right, I'm swimming. I'm gonna wait till you kite everything. I'm swimming. Okay. Oh, no. Oh, I think I see what looks like a giantish house. I'm making a beeline. What is going on? For everybody who reses, just swim across the lake with us to the north. There we go. Okay. Swimming across the lake. That looks a lot like the Nimrodil with all the stars in it. Okay, just looking out at... There we go. Looking in both directions. Okay, there's the waterfall there. It's a big cloud over the mountain hoods again. Yeah. 
Okay, and I'm seeing... I think some... that's like the perpetual snowstorm, trying to keep everyone away. Probably. Ugh, it's like Lake Everswim. Yeah. There is a, a dock worker that we can run across who can get us a quick port back. Well, that's good to know. Just keep swimming. Just do the giants swimming. have a dock over here? No, the dwarves do, though. Huh. Why I was do... going to say, like, the giants would just be up to their knees or something. Okay, now Easy from here, puddle. the giantish home looks very like the ones in the troll shaws. Um, oh, there are worms, which I suppose I could have expected. And there's my first giant. Okay, a stone giant worm keeper. Oh, there they are. They have. <clears throat> like Fu Manchus, that's different. Oh, okay. They're proportions. Going for the Freddie Mercury look. Yeah, their proportions are different, a little bit different. Their arms are longer, shoulders a little bit broader. This looks a lot like that uh, quest to get the pack from, what was it, Bob's pack? Oh, yeah, that guy. Dob yeah. Sandheaver? Uh. Yep, yep. Dob Sandheaver. I get it mixed up because Dob was talking to Bob. Now their skin is really interesting. Look at how cracked his skin is. I well, mean, you need to condition that. Looks leather. like yeah, he needs some serious lotion, but it's not. It's almost stone. These that's are these almost what look I'm like asking the stone here. giant. That's see, that's this is what I wanted to see, because of course, like the stone giants, you know, the giants of, um, you know, the Misty Mountain area and the Trollshaws are very sort of traditional giant. I mean, they just look like huge people, right? Um, mm -hmm. And there's nothing about them to associate them with stones apart from the fact that they apparently pick up and chuck stones, right? So, Like footballs. Yes, yes. Well, it's dwarves they would kick like footballs, presumably. But see, what I wanted to see was... Cause so, I, so I've gone from, in my Lotro giant experience, I've gone straight from... Uh, the those old giants, right? The giants of the Trollshaws and the Misty Mountains, all the way through to Norzum in Wildermore, who yep. looks barely human shaped, right? Uh, you know, clearly made of stone. Um, mm -hmm. And so I was interested to see what these guys, who are made by the developers after both of those uh, figures, what kind of changes they made. And they're clearly using, they're clearly hearkening back to the giants of the Trollshaws. Like I said, that house is very Trollshaws with the, mm -hmm. you know, the, you know, like. The blocks and the skin. Right. The, the skin yeah. hangings. Yes, exactly. Um, even this uh, big urn, you know, on a, on a pole. I don't remember mm -hmm. if they had exactly those, but again, it's reminding me of their sort of fixtures. We did. There was a mission to poison them. Uh-huh. That's what I was vaguely in, remembering. Um, even then. Um, so, yeah, I'm really lamenting that I can't stealth myself and get a closer look without aggroing him. Um, but his skin does look... I mean, they're, they're... Oh, thank you. Go ahead and come towards me, and then you can... Uh, you can... You can kill me if I can just get a good look at you for a second first. Okay, there we go. Yeah. I mean, it's really the all-around texture of his skin, which does mm -hmm. look like 
Stone. Stone, yes. Um, you could imagine that his flesh is actually made of stone. Oh, he held out for quite a reasonably long time. This is an elite section. This is a fellowships area. That's so. great. That's very no more con- running on horseback past these guys. Right, that's very convenient. <laughs> but no, unfortunately, they didn't aggro me from very far away. I got quite close before he picked mm-hmm. up on us. But, um, but anyway, they're like uh, their their boots. Their sort of furry boots are very like the furry boots of the giants of the Trollshaws. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's a dead orc over here to see what kind of threat they are. <laughs> Just random orc corpse. Just random orc corpse. Okay. Just washed up on the wrong side of the shore. Right. The long hair? I mean, they're yeah, all... Yeah, riffraff over here. They're all bald, and yet some have the, you know, the, like, bald eagle look going on with the... Yep, yep. The long mullet and the bald crown... Um, Giants of the Gladdenmere. Stone giants hold the northern edge of the Gladdenmere from the shorelines to the slope of the mountains and have been stirred into a frenzy by the dead that walk. And I can understand that. So the ghosts are bugging them. The ghosts are bugging them. Yeah. Huh. Huh. Huh? Yeah, so the wilder folk... Those mortals got a mortal. I guess... I guess. I mean, you'd think, I mean, normally they say that, you know, like the dead make quiet neighbors, but I guess not around here. Not in these days. Yeah, I guess not. Not like um, it was in my day. Yeah. Interesting. I, I, that's, I find that, I find that, so, so here's what I'm wondering. I'm wondering if, because the garden fields is still pretty new, isn't this? How many, how many new releases many ago, was, ago was that? Yeah, exactly. It was. We had. Um, I mean, I know that the the the, you know, Gundabad is the most recent one. Gladden I would say two. It was two releases. Iron Hills yeah. came afterwards. Iron Hills, uh, Grey Mountains, Vales of Anduin, which is this. Okay. And then Wells of Langflood, and then War of Three Peaks. Which okay. Is okay. So it was three releases ago. So what what I'm wondering Maybe four. is Minas Morgul was in the middle. Oh, right? four, right? Minas oh, I was. Morgul. I just think two years. That's that was. I remember Mythmoot, and I remember running through here with the bears. Right, right. So what I'm what I'm wondering is if uh, if they have any plans to kind of uh, retcon the retcon the giants of uh, Trollshaws in the Misty Mountains in the image of these dudes, or if they're if these are specifically supposed to be a separate species, like mm. one with particularly overdeveloped upper bodies and particularly bad skin care. From my understanding is if something is set for a specific, it's kind of like Eowyn yeah, having yeah. the wrong dress. In the, so they changed her model, like in modern content, and it retroactively changed her model in the past. They if they said troll equals this model, then if these are the current trolls, or then theoretically, yeah. yeah, or giants in this yeah. case, then theoretically the ones in the Misties would look like these guys. Right. Interesting. 
We're not that okay. far away. We can go look. It's an interesting thought. Um, yeah. But so I'm I'm trying to remember the ones in the Misties. They kind of look like like big. Were they like? Just like I, big. Were they humans. wearing woolly hats? I'm trying to remember. I, there, there might have been some hats. I mean, I, 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 their outfits yeah. remind er, these remind me of their outfits, as far as I can recall. Um, but yeah, they just looked like there was nothing. There was specifically nothing stony oh. about them. No, that yeah, no, they were very much fleshy giants. Yes, yes, they were just giant people, like extra large people. Whereas, yeah, that that skin and notice the head. I mean, so like the the top knot that that guy had suggests uh-huh. that they do or can grow hair, but just that they actually shave it. Well, the top of the head, you know, maybe, maybe. I think that depends. Yeah, perhaps. I think it depends on whether their mother's father had hair. I think that's how it goes. <laughs> right, right, perhaps. A giant barber of some kind? Maybe. Maybe. All right. Okay. Well, my curiosity is satisfied about the giants. That's what I wanted to see, to see if they're, and it does seem, <laughs> they do seem to be shifting in the post Nurzum period. They do seem to be shifting because my, my general sense from the story and the exploration that I have done is that Nurzum in Wildermore was kind of a turning point for their conception of giants and that, and so I wanted to see, um, which side of the Nurzum line uh, these giants, knowing that they were post Nurzum, uh, what's the, so that was that satisfies my curiosity. Okay, so I think we're done with the Gladden Fields proper. We should we 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 haven't been down to Duskenvale. I want to visit Duskenvale because that's the a town that we haven't visited there. Um, okay, and then we can after that we can shift around the other side and head up to Lyrlad and Ross Gobel. And then back up through and eventually up to the Carrick. Awesome. I think that sounds that sounds like a plan for our continued explorations uh, of the Vales of Anduin. So awesome. Um, thank you guys uh, for joining uh, me today. Thank you, Valori. Glad you're back with us here today. Yay. Uh, Very happy to be back. Absolutely. Um, uh, so, and we'll say to everybody else, thank you. And we'll see you guys next week. Bye now. Bye.